I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarra Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarra Media, and I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues, and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day -day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists, and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions, and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. The era of prints is over half a millennium old. And if it has an arbitrary starting point, which is of course rarely how innovation works, but if it does, well, that would have to be the production of the Gutenberg Bible in the 1450s, printed by Johannes Gutenberg and financed by Johann Fust. What happened next and why is well documented. Martin Luther, the 95 Theses, the Reformation, the modern nation state, the rise of the public sphere, all of this was made possible, so the argument goes, because of the printing press. It was, in short, one of the most disruptive technologies in human history. But what if that period was only temporary? What if the internet is just as disruptive as the printing press, if not more so? And what might be the kinds of social values and politics to emerge from that kind of disruption happening once more? What if the world as we see it, the world created by Gutenberg, was merely a parenthesis in human history? I discussed all of that with Professor Jeff Jarvis, whose new book makes precisely that argument. Jeff Jarvis, welcome to Navarra FM. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, we're talking about your recently published book. It was published over the summer. It's called The uh, Gutenberg Parenthesis. I suppose we can start at the top. Who was Johannes Gutenberg? Um, it's important to note that he didn't invent uh, movable type the first. It was first done in China and in Korea. We don't know whether that connected to his work, but in the 1450s, he, in Europe, created movable type. He's said to be the inventor of the press, but presses existed already, and they were around. The point was that being able to turn um, letters into uh, things, into something that could be set over and over and over again. Uh, he scaled um, text. And, and you said that, that, that printing existed prior to that, but the difference is the interoperability. I mean, there's obviously this claim that comes out that actually we have movable type in, in China long before Gutenberg. What's the, what's the veracity on that? I mean, you always hear this, you know, there's a Brazilian Michael Faraday or there's a, goodness knows what, you know, a West Asian Charles Darwin. Who genuinely... Um, came up with this innovation? It definitely did exist before in China and Korea. There's evidence of it and there's, there's um, a history there. It didn't spread. And so I think the only question extant is, did some knowledge of this through Marco Polo and printed money or something come to Europe and inspire Gutenberg or was it fresh out of his mind? Um, What's interesting is a lot of things had to happen before Gutenberg, before movable type could really occur. Not just technical things, but also I, I was fascinated to learn that uh, for centuries, text was written by the scribes without spaces because it was mainly oral. It was mainly meant to, to be for recitation. So you had to get spaces back in. You had to get the idea of the word you had to get uh, a sense of text in there before Gutenberg was ready. There are technological determinist arguments that uh, print was inevitable and someone would have invented it. It's proving a negative. There's no way to know. And there were, are other pretenders to the crown. Lawrence Koster in the Netherlands uh, still has legend saying that he invented it. There's another legend that uh, Gutenberg or his financier, Johan Fust, stole away another guy's type in the middle of the night, but all that has been um, debunked. Gutenberg's uh, legend is true. 
The th weird thing is to me, uh, here we are in modern media where what, new media comes out, what do we do? We use it to, to put our names out there to do things. We can find no evidence that Gutenberg ever printed his name. Uh, and so there's no record of what he did except from printing as it existed after him and from some court documents because he was fairly litigious. Yeah, and actually, look, the book is, as we'll, as we'll go over uh, over the next hour and discuss, the book is a fantastic introduction, really, to the, to the history of, of the modern book. And there are, other, there are other texts out there. Elizabeth Eisenstein, a personal hero of mine, it's fantastic to see you uh, bring her up in, in this book, just a phenomenal scholar. Um, I think I read that about 15 years ago, and my mind was blown. Yeah, same uh, here. Yeah, just one of the great books, I think, of the last century, really underread. Um, what was really interesting and that came through powerfully in this book, however, which doesn't really come through in Eisenstein or other, other books about the book, about modern literacy and, and modern reading and print production, is how um, Gutenberg was very much, to my eyes anyway, a, a modern entrepreneur. He had multiple skill sets. He had an ability to access finance. Like you say, he had a business partner. Um, he, he probably could have gone into half a dozen industries and done very well for himself. So c can you tell me a little bit about Gutenberg, despite the fact we don't know all that much about him, as a commercial operator rather than simply a historic individual who did this one thing, created this Bible and whatnot? One could credit him with inventing uh, the assembly line and uh, elements of capitalism and scale and industrialization. We could go overboard here. But that's what fascinated me at first about Gutenberg is I did see him as the or entrepreneur. <laughs> he had to solve myriad problems to create the book. Uh, problems of metallurgy to get the exact right formula of uh, tin, antimony, and lead to be able to make letters at scale, to make the handheld mold, to come up with the means to sculpt letters and make molds for them, to uh, adapt presses for the purpose, to deal with the chemistry of ink. But then also, as you say, it is a story of capitalism and capital. Um, he had to deal with risk capital. He obviously published the books. He needed to buy all the equipment, build all the equipment, have the work people there, uh, buy the paper before he would get a single gulden of uh, revenue. So he went to Johann Fust, who we don't know much about, but he's just a business person in Mainz. He did some combination of borrowing money and doing stock and collateral, and it's not clear. We do have court records of the dissolution of their partnership, which led to the idea that Gutenberg was left penniless. He wasn't. Uh, the Bible was a successful business, and they just had to split up the, uh, the rewards and, and move on. And Fust and his son-in-law, Peter Schoeffer, built a printing business that lasted for 100 years, which is pretty amazing for a brand new industry. And printers from their shop quickly went around Europe, and it spread. Um, well, I've been thinking about it in anticipation of this interview, that, um, about the story of capital in printing. I mean, printing is a story of power, of who has it and who can do it and who can't. Uh, Gutenberg needed capital. He needed risk capital to be able to um, develop printing and develop the book. And they made a profit on their first major effort, the Bible, in 1454. What's fascinating to me is the scale of printing stayed, and the technology of printing to the point, stayed pretty standard, pretty at the same level for 350 years. Very little, even though we don't know exactly how Gutenberg printed, my presumption is, and I'm not an academic, a real academic, I'm only a journalism professor, but my presumption is that if we didn't hear any eureka moments of, oh my God, this is how they used to print, but now we've invented something new, we heard none of that for 350 years. So I'm guessing that what Gutenberg started fundamentally stayed the same for that time. What changed then was the mechanization and industrialization of print with other technologies, with steam, stereotyping, the linotype, and so on, in the 19th century. Uh, also, importantly, uh, wood pulp uh, as, a, as a means to make paper much cheaper. That led to mass media. That led to scale. It also led to the requirement of considerable capital to be part of the public conversation. My favorite stat, I think, from the book is that before the mechanization and industrialization of print, the average circulation of a daily newspaper in the U.S. was 4,000. It was a good Substack newsletter. 
<laughs> then, of course, it went to hundreds of thousands and millions and so on and so forth. And now online, to get way ahead of myself, um, I think we see a paradox of scale. That is, the internet is so big, it connects everyone, that we can again be small, that we can do small things like podcasts. Some, this is a very big podcast, but you know what I mean. We can, we can have Substack newsletters. We can bring back down, potentially, to a human scale. And so that, that arc of scale and capital and what it took to enter the public conversation really fascinates me when I think that it all started with the capital requirements for Gutenberg. Yeah, and, and, and this idea of him being the Euro-entrepreneur, you know, he, he brings to mind Henry Ford, who uh, obviously isn't just famous for the car, but for a bunch of other things too. You know, the modern assembly line is kind of coterminous with his, his business career. Here's a question for you, and I've seen it posited elsewhere, but it's very counterintuitive for sort of literary progressive types. Was the book the first ever commodity? Or, or was Gutenberg's Bible the first ever commodity? as we understand it, integrating oh. multiple industries, et cetera? That's a really, really interesting question. Um, let's first note that print as a business was kept alive, not just with books and with the Bible, but with ephemera. It led to forms and contracts and proclamations. It led to bureaucracy and more government and, and all kinds of other things, and, and, and eventually news as well, though it took a century and a half before the newspaper was invented, which I bet we'll get to. Um, but I, I love the question about commodity because one of the things that struck me most uh, as a journalist looking back at the history is that there came a point, I think, when what we think of, what was thought of as conversation, as culture, became the commodity we call content. This idea of content, of it's something to you know, fill a book. And the, the, the idea, the Gutenberg parenthesis, is that, is that, is that it's a container. And everything is contained. And the conceit of the Gutenberg age, of the print age, is that everything is a story that can fit in these boundaries. It has a beginning and an end, an alpha and a neat omega. And um, it's, a, it's a commodity to be sold. The business model for print didn't come until 1710 and copyright. And that led to the presumption that this thing we think of, of as content is a commodity as a tradable asset that can be bought and sold. And I didn't fully realize that copyright was not invented to protect creators. It was invented instead to turn content into this tradable asset so that booksellers and, and publishers could then resell it in turn. So all of that, I think, means that we end up with this idea of what we do, what we're doing right now, as content and content as a commodity. I think we, we reach the apotheosis of this today with generative AI, which shows us that content is commodified fully. It's not where our value resides. Our value in culture resides elsewhere. In journalism, it should reside, it should reside in, in information and authority and mm -hmm. credibility and service and so on. But instead, we think that what we do is manufacture this product we call content. So yes, I think the question, the, the long-winded answer to your question is that what Gutenberg really invented was the commodity of content. Mm, and the, probably the favorite part of my book actually is where you talk about scribes who are faced with this you know, technological disruption to their, not just their profession and their vocation, their way of seeing the world, but also, and I'd never heard this argument before, uh, the immense destruction of value for them. Because of course, these people who um, specialize in the, in the production of books prior to Gutenberg also own many of these books, which are incredibly rare and therefore incredibly valuable. And you're looking at really the destruction of yeah, asset values, right? Their portfolios, their, their stocks, their pension plans, all of a sudden the value of that's just gonna disintegrate. It was such a fascinating argument I'd never really um, engaged with before. So quickly, I suppose, how did scribes so we would call them legacy media today, of course. How did the legacy media of the 15th century look at this new product, this new age of print that, that starts with Gutenberg's Bible? It's important to say, and book historians would, would uh, slap me about if I didn't say this, that scribal culture, scribes, didn't disappear with print. That manuscripts and scribes, one could argue that scribes stayed in business until the typewriter. 
that business was done by handwriting uh, and, and that skill uh, in courts and so on stayed for quite a long time. But yes, you're, it's interesting to look at the earliest scribes. In some cases, uh, especially monks who did this as part of their vocation, um, wanted to give it up, put the pen down. It was hard and miserable work uh, to do this. There's a, there's, I, I quote somewhere in the book, there's a great um, colophon. A colophon is what was put at the end of a book to say how it was produced. And I have one in my book, by the way. Um, and there was a, a scribe who had just had it writing something at the end said, uh, you know, this very long, windy St. Augustine, I'm glad this is over. So some scribes wanted to give it away. Um, others said, um, no, 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 this is part of the vocation of the monk and don't give this up. No matter, It's not an economic issue, it's an, it's an issue of devotion. And then others indeed said, screw them, they're taking away our business. There was this great um, letter to the Doge of Venice complaining that uh, these damn printers, Germans, have arrived in Italy and there was a lot of um, uh, uh, ethnic uh, disparagement involved in this, that they, they, they drink and they bray and they take away our work and they, and they put out terrible work. They, Ovid, the young people are reading Ovid. Oh my God, what's going to happen to culture? It's, it's the something must be done moral panic that we see with every two no new technology to this day. You use the words moral panic. I mean, that's perfectly apposite. So can you talk about some of the moral panics which surrounded the um, the introduction of print? I mean, you've said one there with regards to Ovid, which makes me chuckle. Uh, are there any others? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Erasmus, who was the first best-selling author, worried that there were too many books, that this would confuse our brains. Again, all this sounds familiar. And interestingly to me, the, the book business was in shambles. The, quarters, the first quarter, first half century of the history of the books till 1500 is called the incunabular or, or infant phase of print. And uh, the book as we know it now with titles and title pages and page numbers and indices didn't really start developing until then. Also interestingly, at that point, the book business was in complete shambles. It was, a, it was miserable. Um, too much capital had gone into this fascinating new technology. Uh, the market was sated for uh, the ancients, which is what, they, what the book business did at first, just as the scribes. The goal was to preserve the, the work of the ancients. What saved it all was Martin Luther. And one could well say, I think, that Martin Luther uh, caused his own moral panic with the Catholic Church. Uh, in the sense that, by God, what are these books doing? And and the Pope issued bulls demanding that Luther's books be burned, of course, that they were bad for the church and humanity and everything. Uh, Luther burned them in turn. And and, and I think um, we absolutely had that then. But we, we go further. The moral panic question is fascinating to me, and I'm, I'm working on another book about the Internet and looking at this. What what fascinates me especially is that... Is, as print got cheaper, thanks to all the mechanization I mentioned earlier, um, and other forms came out, um, the worry was that especially fiction would corrupt mainly women and children. Um, and that uh, reading too much of this stuff was bad, uh, lending libraries where women could get their hands on fiction were corrupting the world, uh, and so on. So we've seen moral panics not just around AI and social media and television and radio and the telegraph, but also all the way back to books. So the way that you talk about uh, Gutenberg and his business partner first, and we've already sort of touched on this, it feels like a very contemporary story of accessing finance, taking risks, uh, you know, the classic... Um, explanation of the entrepreneur is somebody who mobilizes resources or, ide or ideas in new and innovative ways. And that's clearly what he's doing. So that feels very contemporary. And then the way you just mentioned Martin Luther there um, also feels contemporary, which is to say at the time of the, uh, the 95 theses, you know, he didn't know this, but the, you know, the origin story of what would become the Reformation, you have had a long period of um, investment 
into this infrastructure, into these industries, which nobody really knows what they're for, what the end game is. And it feels to me remarkably similar to the early 21st century in the dot-com bubble, where you have euphoric investment into industries, which really, you know, there's a lot of skepticism, but people don't really have a, a broad idea of where it's going. And actually, you know, this is a technology or a, a technology set, a general purpose technology, in search, in search of, a, of an animus in a way, which feels very similar to the, the 2010s, um, you know, the early 2020s, frankly, and our relationship now to the investment of the dot-com era at the start of this century. Is that a fair analogy? Oh, I, I think so. I, mean, I want to be careful about arguing that history repeats itself or is a carbon copy. It's not. We know that. My argument in the book is that we have lessons to learn from an entry into the age of print as we leave it for whatever follows. The biggest lesson to me, I think, is that we have time. Uh, that the development of print and print culture, and there are those who argue there's no such thing as print culture, but I'll just use it as shorthand, um, took a great deal of time. What fascinates me most is that it took a century and a half until a few years this side and that of 1600 before we saw tremendous innovation with print. The invention of the modern novel with Cervantes, the invention of the essay with Montaigne, the creation of a market for printed plays with Shakespeare, and the invention of the newspaper, all in that same period. What was happening? I don't know, but I think what was happening was that the technology had to stop being seen as a technology. Uh, Clay Shirky has said this of uh, social media, that once everyone use it, uses it and it's commonplace, and when it's, it's boring, that's when it becomes interesting. Mm. And so people no longer saw print as a technology, and the technologists, the printers, faded in the background and the creators came to the forefront. I think that in the long arc of the internet, uh, the connected world, the world filled with data, thinking machines, I put it all in one bucket. I think we're, we're very much at the beginning. My argument is that we're in, at 1480 in Gutenberg years. We're a little over a quarter century past the introduction of the commercial browser. We still see this as a technology story. Uh, I'm working on a book about the internet, as I said, and at one point I say in it, I think that it's, we should stop looking at the internet as technology. It's not, it's a human network. Everything that's good and everything that's bad about it is us and what we do. Mm. And we've not yet begun, we're still in that early moral panic phase where, oh my God, there's bad stuff here. Something must be done. We must get rid of it. We must control speech. We must control technology. Look at the AI conference going on at Bletchley Park uh, as we speak. And Fine, yes, there are things to worry about with technology, but mainly we've got to worry about us. And then we've got to turn around our worry and see what we can invent with this. Where is the Cervantes and the Montaigne and the Shakespeare of this age? Um, what new inventions are now possible because we have a mechanism to collaborate and to reach each other around the world and to hear the nuances of voices once again rather than the mass and opinion polls and such. So that's the analogy that I want to draw because there's lessons in it for us. Yeah, I think that's a great reframe. I mean, there's the work of Ben Bratton as well. He talks about, he talks about all of these digital devices that we all use, virtually all, all um, 8 billion of us, as this you know, global computational network. And you know, that even extends not just to, like you say, culture, but even to, to geology. You know, so it's planetary in scale, but also the Earth has developed this thick, exoskeleton of satellites and, and devices which permit us to do this, which is a really, like you sort of insinuated there, it's a great reframe actually as this being a human story rather than a technology one. I suppose I might push back though a little bit and say, is there not an argument that this is now accelerated? So whereas, you know, in the, in the 15th, 16th century, innovations, developments may have taken, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, now they take six months. Um, and that's partly an outgrowth of the fact we can diffuse innovations, diffuse um, technology adoption far more quickly, partly as a result of globalization. I mean, just look at the adoption, for instance, of the mobile phone in, in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, if you said in 2000 that the adoption of, of, of mobile phones, people using phones to, to do online banking in, in places like Kenya would have been absurd, and yet we're here. So there does feel like 
there's an accelerated adoption of some of this stuff now compared even to, to 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago. So when you say lots of time, and I agree, by the way, with the Clay Shirky thing of a technology is powerful precisely when it becomes mundane and you take it for granted. But it's, it's, that, it's that proposition which makes me think actually about Facebook and Trump. Because, you know, there was a story about social media in, let's say, 2005, 2006. This is revolutionary. It's going to change the world. People are on listservs or they can email, you know, people other side of the planet. Actually, the stuff was truly radical when you had relatively, you know, apolitical 65-year-old swing voters on Facebook in 2016. And that was their primary source of news journalism. That, that was when it was disruptive, not when it was the people at Caltech or, you know, Stanford. So... I suppose that would push back a bit in so much as, well, we're already there, aren't we, in, in, in terms of this technology becoming mundane. Um, so when you say we're at the start, whereabouts do you think we are? Are we literally, is it, is it a one-to-one -one ratio? Is that the exchange rate in terms of time post-innovation or is it something a bit, more, a bit more nuanced? Two things. One, I think I am too old to know how this turns out. Um, so uh, I can only guess. Two, I think you have hit the, 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 the most vulnerable argument in my book. Uh, Matthew Kirschenbaum, who was my reviewer who outed himself in the academic publisher, Bloomsbury, uh, argued the same point, that, that no, everything's happening very fast. Um, the adoption certainly is fast. So was it with print, by the way. Print spread quickly around Europe, uh, not the whole world, but, but very quickly around Europe. Um, England was a laggard for various reasons, including being cold and wearing wool and not having enough paper. Um, uh, North America was very much a laggard. Uh, Africa and, and the Middle East were laggards uh, by comparison. But the spread in Europe was fast. That's why I kind of concentrate on that. But again, the technology spreading is not the point. It's how do we see this and what do we do with this? And I think we inevitably see the future in the analog of the past, and we're still in that phase. Online books, magazines, and newspapers are recognizable as books, magazines, and newspapers. We haven't really, and, and, and I'm frustrated as a journalism teacher that we have not, I have not, sufficiently, radically enough reinvented and rethought journalism. Um, and uh, that's what I try. I started a program in entrepreneurial journalism to try to get students to do that. Um, last year, last fall, Douglas Rushkoff, the author of many books, including Throw Rocks at the Google Bus and, and Team Human, uh, he's at Queens College and I'm at uh, elsewhere in the City University of New York for now, and we taught a course together in, in reinventing the internet. And to your point, uh, we realized a few classes into the term that the students, master's students, were all younger than the web. Mm. And they didn't know the web that Douglas and I knew, the early hope, the quaint technology, the kind of human scale of it, um, the danger, danger ahead that we didn't see. And so Douglas had to do a lecture in early internet, bitmap graphics and, and acoustic modems and uh, early chat and uh, protocols and such. Um, what that also told me though, was that the students couldn't imagine an internet other than the one they have, which is a corporate centralized internet in the hands of a few proprietors whom I believe are temporary guests here. And I think we're in this phase of saying, oh my God, bad things can happen. Uh, something must be done. We need to control this, which means controlling speech, which makes, gives me hives. Um, I think we're still in that early phase. So even though the technology may be adopted quickly as print was, um, I don't think we've begun to use our cultural imagination sufficiently yet to rethink what this is. Now, this is going to sound silly, but I think the first glimmer I see of that alternative future is TikTok. Totally. Uh, primarily because it is the first, in my mind, the first truly collaborative mechanism. Um, and it may be used to collaborate and make uh, sea shanties, and that's fine. Uh, but... That to me is the essence of what is now possible. Um, one of the morals of my book is to argue that we lost the conversational nature of society. Neil Postman says that culture is conversation. 
print was highly conversational until it scaled and became a mechanized industry. Um, we are able to recapture the public conversation today. We're doing a bad job of it because we're out of practice, I think, but we'll try to figure it out. <clears throat> and there are things we need to do it better. But I think that we're very early at the process of learning what we can do together on this thing. And we're not yet at the process of saying, okay, okay, there's bad crap out there. Let's find ways to ignore it. How do we find, how do we discover, support, recommend, nurture the good stuff? How do we find the arts and the culture and the information and the science together in ways that we couldn't before? I don't think that process of discovery is very far along at all. Mm. So is the future medieval? Because you've talked about this being a temporary blip, the, the Gutenberg uh, parenthesis. And if it is medieval, what does that mean? So that's a line from Tom Pettit, who uh, spread this um, meme of the Gutenberg parenthesis, and I, and I used the, that as my title with his kind permission. Tom Pettit came to MIT in, I think, 2010 and gave a talk about the Gutenberg parenthesis. The idea that the things within the Gutenberg age and he points out, by the way, that in America, we think parenthesis is the uh, typographical devices, whereas in the UK, uh, parenthesis means that which is inside. So parenthesis in this side, in this case, is the British sense. And that before the parenthesis, language was passed around, information was passed around, stories were passed around, mouth to mouth, changed along the way. There was no sense of ownership and authorship. Um, the goal of the scribes was to preserve the knowledge of the ancients. Uh, along comes print and things change. McLuhan would say that our cognition changes, uh, that the, sentence, the, the, the line, this sentence is an example, becomes our organizing principle. We get the sense of content and ownership um, and so on. And now we come to the other side of the parenthesis. And uh, once again, what we say is passed around click to click, mouth to mouth. It's changed along the way. There's little sense of ownership and authorship. We fight around about copyright as a result. Um, uh, the business model has, has changed. Uh, copyright becomes in great measure obsolete today uh, in a time of abundance versus scarcity, uh, and so on and so on and so on. So I, I saw Pettit, I was fascinated by this video. Uh, he became, uh, as, uh, to his consternation, a bit of a demi-celebrity among the, the internet geeks uh, in New York and Boston. And I had lunch with him and I said, uh, wow, it's just fascinating, this coincidence. And he looked at me like I was an idiot and said, no, it's not a coincidence, that's our point, it is a return. And, 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 and so Pettit, as it turns out, is a medievalist. He was fascinated by how news was spread in ballads. He's fascinated by how society negotiated its information. And this notion of the parenthesis is something that he's lived ever, ever since. Now, the other thing that came as I then studied this, is the problem of periodization. Medievalists get really pissed off at the idea of the Dark Ages. Yeah. They weren't dark and they weren't bad. And that that is a, in many arguments, a colonialist argument of modern times, not even of the Renaissance, it is said, but of modern times where we, this odd thing happens where we want to dismiss an entire period of human history so as to make ourselves superior, and so as to denigrate the people we want to suppress as medieval, gothic. Um, so in a way, what it's about is recapturing the value of that time and recognizing that we can find value in it and uh, model ourselves not just over the recent past, not just over, uh, after the time of print, but also before. In this process, I came across a magnificent, magnificent book, uh, a, a new translation of Johann Husinga's Autumn Tide of the Middle Ages. And the, the, the publisher, the one I have back there is big and thick and expensive and, and just, just stunning and stunning in its language. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And it gives one an appreciation of the nuance and depth of the medieval years. So yes, I would like to think that we can be medieval in all the best senses. Now, of course, the problem with that is what's happening with the, especially in the US, um, 
the far right white nationalist uh, extremists is that they also want to capture this idea of medieval in a, the mythical and erroneous way of, and I put air quotes before me, Anglo-Saxon, white, um, male, macho, violent uh, ethos. And so one needs to be a little careful of what does one mean when one says medieval. Uh, I mean it in the sense of Pettit and Husinga, not in the sense of America's right wing. You, you do have some very harsh words for the journalistic profession. I've got a quote here. If journalism is designed for nothing so much as heaping scorn on criminals, miscreants, lying politicians, thieving business people, victims who we secretly blame for their misfortunes, people who give stupid answers to pollsters, and the other side in any argument. That is pretty damning. So how, how have your feelings developed in regards to, let's call it legacy journalism um, or legacy media? Because presumably, you know, you teach this stuff. You didn't always feel that way. You probably would have, you probably would have entered a different profession. So how have you arrived at that kind of conclusion? Big question. Um, I was a, a, a newspaper and magazine guy. I started the magazine Entertainment Weekly in the U.S. Uh, I loved magazines. I loved newspapers. I, by the way, have another book out tomorrow called Magazine, uh, which is a kind of an elegy to the form, uh, which is fascinating. So I, I loved the field. That's why I was in it. I think my life changed on September 11, 9-11, so, uh, 2001. I was at the World Trade Center in the last train in underneath. I came up as the second jet hit the second tower. I'm a journalist and an idiot, and I stayed around to report. And I was a city block from the South Tower when it fell and obviously survived. Uh, I had been following blogs. I knew about blogs. I didn't think I had anything to say in blogs because I was an editor and an executive by then running online, new online news sites. And, but I, after surviving the World Trade Center attack, I had more to say, so I started a blog thinking I'd do it for a few weeks. Uh, Nick Denton, who founded Gawker Media later, and who showed me blogs in the first place, told some friends in LA about what I was writing, and they wrote something in their blogs and linked back to me, and I answered and linked back to them, and that was the light bulb moment for me in my, in my life and career, because I saw that properly conceived media or conversation. It happens in different times, in different places, but it is conversational. And this is something that James Carey teaches. Um, and so that was the, the beginnings of my scales falling from my eyes. Uh, before that, my entire career, I thought I was in the business of making content. I also worked for Connie Nast, for Steve Newhouse, who's now the chair of Advanced Publications. And Steve was amazingly uh, prescient in the value of the internet. We'd go into meetings uh, where somebody would say, I want Vogue content for my for Yahoo. And Steve would laugh and say, They're gonna, that's, that's, not, that's not valuable for online. It's not what it's about. Content is not valuable. Conversation is what's valuable. Interaction is what's valuable. He taught me that. And we, and we did that. So if you start saying conversation is the essence of journalism, well, a lot of things fall out from that. Who's not in the conversation? Um, how that conversation is manipulated and molded by things like opinion polls. Uh, and memes and the presumptions of journalism of symmetry in society, which is the most dangerous thing going on right now. Um, uh, moral panics against new media. I tell the story in the book of J Gwyneth Jackaway writes about when radio came along, everything newspapers did to try to stop it from doing news. Uh, terrible lack of generosity, should we say. Um, and I look at the, the impact today where journalism... Um, thinks that it informs society, but it doesn't because we end up with an uninformed society. So if we're going to judge our outcomes, how, what kind of job are we doing? A crappy one. So this all led me to invent a new program at my school in engagement journalism with my colleague, Carrie Brown, in which our students are taught to find a community of self-definition, not an external definition like boomers, but an internal definition, and to... Uh, observe and listen to that community, understand that community's needs, reflect their understanding back with humility, and then begin to imagine what journalism might do in collaboration with that community. So I do see, and my, our students do amazing things. They are as Trojan horses going into newsrooms saying, you're getting this wrong. <laughs> they bring the receipts from the public of what the public wants, and there's some great stuff going on. And there's movements around, reparative journalism, engagement journalism, solutions journalism, um, constructive journalism. 
so I think that there is a reform movement going around, but it's slow and difficult because we still bow down at the temples, at the New York Times and the Washington Post and cable news networks and the BBC um, and the Guardian, which I adore and worked for. Uh, and um, and at times we should bow down. There is great and brave journalism happening at many of these places, and I don't mean to dismiss it all. But as an institution, I think we failed. I think we have um, not informed the public. I think we have separated the public into warring factions. We profit off of uh, conflict. Um, the moral panic going on about the internet now that we see on media, which is widespread, which is really the subject of the next book, uh, is a, a, an act of protectionism by a dying old news industry. And what I struggle with at the moment is there are those who say burn down the old ones and start over again, or no, we would lose too much and we've got to try to bring them along, which is hubristic too to think that I can save old newspapers, right? But, but I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I'm not sure what we do, but I, know, I do know, if, if, I, if I believe journalism were completely doomed and, and nothing existed, then I'd, I'd be a fraud teaching journalism. So I do believe there is a future, and I tell my students every single year, you are the ones who must reinvent journalism. I am too fucking old. You've got to be the ones to do it. But you have to have the imagination. You have to have the context. You have to have the curiosity. Um, I was thinking just this morning that we think journalism, we think society, we think democracy is all a system around information. It's probably not. It's a, it's a system of belief. And we don't have a system that grapples with noxious beliefs. And we don't know what to do with them. So I think journalism has to be completely and utterly rethought. But I'm still kind of too stuck in my old ways to do it myself. Well, I don't think you're too old, Jeff. Judging by your last book, I think you've probably got decades of contributions, hopefully. Um, on this idea of, of, of journalism having such major problems, and it's something, you know, it's why we started Navarra Media. I, I always find it strange how legacy media treats you. So, for instance, there'll be a, there has been a front page story in the past of the Daily Telegraph sort of besmirching us, frankly, or the Press Gazette, which is the, is the, is the, is the paper for the people that make papers in this country, or used to be, now it's purely online. You know, the first two stories they did on us were both very, very critical. And I think, my goodness, if you just went onto the Navarro Media website, you'd see James Butler, a very erudite man, having a conversation about the French Revolution with some, you know, 60-year-old scholar from Sciences Po. Like, it's not, it's so far away from what they're presenting. And that, that has actually, it has really radicalized me, I have to say. It has really radicalized me. The older I get, the more I engage with legacy media, the more I think it is completely morally, politically, socially bankrupt and corrupt. And you're right. Like, it's a really, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you say, we have to keep some of these. I clearly believe in the, the things you say you stand for. I believe in that. That's great. If only you actually, if only your deeds were approximate to your words. Um, there are, however, some publications which I, I, I do really enjoy. I found myself saying this this morning, actually, because somebody did this really thoughtful Twitter thread about the Houthis. They said, look, you can talk about the Houthis as a, as a non-state actor. They're the government of Yemen. They, you know, they have the consent of 85% of Yemenis. You know, the, the army is on their side. They have the executive, the legislature, that they are the state. Um, and this was being said on Twitter. And I thought the only place where I've read this argument laid out is the Financial Times. You know, I've not, I, you wouldn't see it made this clearly on the BBC, the Telegraph, the Times, the Guardian. Um, and of course, Chomsky has a great line about financial news, which is if you want to make lots of money, you need to know the facts rather than somebody's bullshit opinion. So for you, as somebody who is so critical of legacy media, what are the outlets that you think are not necessarily, quote unquote, truthful, but high value? Like they make an attempt to inform their readers or their, their viewers. I do, I'm not trying to suck up to you right now, but I do think you and a hundred of yous are necessary. Back, back there on my shelf, I have a book that has all the newspapers in America in 1900, and it is thick. And in New York, there were scores of newspapers. There were scores of voices that represented different perspectives for different people, and together added up to a public and a democracy. 
Uh, I think that's what's vital first and foremost, is to have many yous. Um, and, and, there, and there are lots in many countries. Second, I think we have to fundamentally change our relationship to the people formerly known as the audience, as Jay Rosen would say, my friend from New York University. Um, and there, I see examples of this. Not enough, but I see the, I see, I see the beginnings. Um, a city borough in Chicago trains citizens to cover their own communities and compensates them to do so. Um, spaceship media convenes citizens, uh, communities, sometimes in conflict, into constructive dialogue. Um, uh, outlier media in Detroit answers people's questions over text, and when they don't have the answer, that's when they do the reporting. Texas Tribune, in the, I mean, I'm using U.S. examples because I know them better, obviously, um, uh, is doing wonderful work uh, covering the state uh, you know, that needs coverage. Uh, so there are things that come along that I think attempt to change the relationship. I think that's the key part of this. If we think we are oracles on high, um, we've got to figure out how to listen. I, I think our worst skill in journalism is that we don't listen. We start in, in standard journalism, in standard journalism education, um, you enter a class and the first assignment is to come up with a beat memo and story ideas. We decry that in engagement journalism. We said, no, you don't know enough yet. You don't know anything. You're bringing all your presumptions and all your biases. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. But instead, what you should do is go observe a community and understand listen to that community. So we sent our students up to the South Bronx where the school owns a couple of papers. And um, those who had journalistic experience take out their notebook, and take out their pen. And they think, okay, I'm going to start taking, extracting quotes. And they quickly realize, put it away. Uh, that does nothing. And the photographer is the same. They put the camera away and they begin by listening. And um, so the, those that try to listen in new ways, I, I, I think, do something. Uh, uh, solutions journalism believes that we report problems all the time, but there's also efforts in communities to do things about those problems. We must report those efforts as well and give people a chance to have um, uh, impact on their communities and lives. Constructive journalism out of Denmark argues that we in journalism present a skewed, terrible, cracked mirror to the world and that it's not an accurate picture. It depresses everybody about the world we're in from the starting point. Um, I don't want to be Pollyanna there, but I think that it's a, it's a legitimate point. In our everyday lives, it isn't Armageddon all around us. Yeah. It's not here for you and me. It is in other parts of the world right now, especially. Um, so there are these, and reparative journalism, I think, is absolutely critical. Um, uh, Meredith Clark at Northeastern University uh, is talking about the reparations that must be made to communities that have been harmed by journalism, especially Black America, also Latino America, um, gay America, and so on. And so that's what interests me is, is rethinking uh, at that level. Is it our job to fix legacy media? I come more and more to think, I think you and I would agree now, no, it's not fixable. We're stuck with it. We have it for now. We've got to demand the most out of it we can. And a lot of journalism and decent journalism is happening in these places. But um, let me go back to this, the entry of radio. So Gwyneth Jackaway's book, Media at War, showed that when radio started, really it was the first ever competitor to print, to Gutenberg. And newspapers uh, lashed out and tried to prevent radio from carrying, in the U.S., from carrying any news at all. When they were going to, they say, okay, you're allowed to do it twice a day. It has to come from our wire services. You may not put any ads on it. You may not profit from it. Get this. Commentators on the air may not talk about any current event until 12 hours after it is over. The hot news doctrine, so-called. Um, they tried to prevent... Uh, reporters from radio being in the congressional press gallery. They um, tried to stop printing radio schedules until the audience screamed at them. They're assholes of the worst sort. They were protectionist. They used the political clout that had been gained through journalism to try to build protectionism. Well, what's happening today? Yeah. Today we see in Canada C-18, which is a law that was lobbied for by news... Uh, companies that are owned by investors and hedge funds that um, 
we're going to ruin the internet, in my view, by uh, requiring the platforms pay for the privilege of linking. Platforms having their own freedom of expression, they're saying, no, screw you. And that's why Facebook has pulled all of news off of Facebook. Now, you can blame Facebook, but I blame the publishers and the, and the politicians who did this. We see this in the online safety bill, so-called, or act now, in the UK. Um, the idea that we must take down harmful content. Well, that mere concept of harmful content is dangerous in a democracy, I think, because who determines what's harmful? Mm. Who decides what must be taken down? Who gets punished if they don't take it down, which is the case with that, with that bill? Um, who has the right to privacy and does not if encryption is killed? We have other legislation around the world similarly. Murdoch in Australia just held up the publishers for money, the platforms for money. And, and we don't know where that money is even going because uh, money is fungible. So our industry as a whole, and I say first-person plural here, acts terribly. It acts against change, against disruption or progress, which I like, think we would both like to think it is, um, against competition. And um, uh, as an industry in the U.S., the trade associations that were started, that I was part of, to promote online news as a valuable thing are now lobbyists, purely going for protectionist legislation. So you're getting me all head up here, and I think I'm going to uh, abandon the old publications uh, even more vociferously after this conversation. Yeah, it's a podcast, so people can't see you, Jeff, but steam is presently coming out of your ears. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's a huge conversation um, to have because, like you say, you and I, I mean, you've said you're, you're old. I, mean, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, you know, uh, you're the, perhaps the wrong side of middle age. I'm, I'm entering it. God knows where life expectancy is ending up. But I find this so interesting, Jeff, because I've got a, a daughter on the way. And, and Mazel. My, uh, thank you very much. And my, my grandmother died this year. And she's not, she, well, that's fine. Well, she was 98. So she was born, um, I don't know if she was 98. She was 97, actually, in the end. She was born in 1926. She was born the same year as um, Queen Elizabeth II. And I think, well, if I have a daughter and she's born and she lives as long as my grandmother, statistically quite likely, then she'll be around, you know, for the early 2100s. For me, as a thought experiment, that's so powerful. You just think, well, what kind of world is she going to depart, you know, and what, she, what, what, what will she see in the meantime? For my grandmother, she lived through, you know, when she was born, I think Hitler had just been released from prison, let alone, you know, the Enabling Act and the Second World War, um, before the end of European colonialism, before the jet engine, the nuclear age, the internet, before we knew the difference between a bacteria and a virus, et cetera, et cetera. And she left the world after COVID-19 and gene sequencing and, you know, and generative AI and all this stuff. And I think for me, that is such a useful way of looking at the questions we've, we've examined over the last hour is that scoping out, right? Okay, well, what does this technology mean? Or what, not even technology, right? Say, what are, the, what are the possibilities of this technology mean in terms of serving humanity? And what kinds of social relations institutions do we need to create in response? You know, maybe over 200 years. I think that's a really useful thought exercise, which, you know, is the complete opposite of what we're incentivized or the way we're incentivized to think at the moment with, with digital media. So I think that's powerful. But of course, at the same time, you know, you, you want to act in, in real time in response to the real world and, and solve problems in the here and now. Uh, one of which is for me, um, which is why we criticize things in the here and now, right? Because we want them to change. You know, we, we don't, it's easy to say, well, actually, things will sort themselves out over 200 years and maybe they will, but that's no good for the likes of, of you or I, anyone listening. One of the things that really strikes me is this, the emergence of things like BBC Verify, where you have legacy media outlets, broadcasters in particular, saying, we will mark our own homework, which is to say, we will make sure you get the truth, which of course was meant to be the calling card of, of, of the BBC anyway. You shouldn't need BBC Verify. What's your explanation as to why these things have come about in the last couple of years? Is it a response to digital technology? Is it a response to social media? Or is it a response to um, a certain kind of political panic regarding Trump and Brexit? What's your read on this? So I have a theory, um, and it's going to go back to Luther, <laughs> that, again, I'm not a technological determinist. There's no guarantee that there's going to be our Luther. But I started asking, do we have a Luther yet? Do we have a Reformation? 
And I think I see a reformation, a racial reformation in Black Lives Matter and such. And I think that I see that what's happening in the United States, uh, different flavors of it in Great Britain and in Germany and so on, but the fear of the other that comes. In the United States is because voices too long not heard in the public sphere, in mainstream mass media, can now be heard thanks to the internet, can now demand their place and demand their venue. And that is what the voices that controlled speech before resent. And in America, those voices were old white men like me. And so one theory is that Black Lives Matter is the American Reformation and January 6th was the Counter-Reformation. Mm. And that we have that struggle now. There's a wonderful, uh, I, I think I quoted uh, in the book, uh, Regina Rini, who's an academic in Canada, talked about uh, status quo warriors. Um, it's another way to look at this whole woke cancel culture bullshit. Um, where the people <clears throat> don't want to be lectured, don't want to change, don't want to uh, acknowledge anyone else's rules now that they are at the table. And we see that happening. I do think, again, that we're at a long phase, but that does not excuse not acting in the, in the present tense. And let me go down a rat hole for a moment, if I may. Please. In all the discussion right now around AI and the crazy AI boys, and their faux philosophy of long-termism, effective altruism, TESCREAL is the acronym uh, from Emil Torres and Timnit Gebru. Have you talked with them yet on the network? I've invited, um, who's their godfather? William, what's his name? Of the effective altruism, Wim, William McCaskill. Oh. I, inv I invite, he's like one of the, in this country, right? I think he's at Oxford. I know, I yeah. know. Well, I, I would argue that he and Bostrom at Oxford are the godfathers of what I think is a very dangerous yeah. philosophy. Yeah, I, I invited him on, but he wouldn't come on. I don't think it was anything malicious on his part. He just said, I don't have the time. You know, he probably, he's probably like got a Gantt chance for his, like the next 10 years of his life. Oh, he's too busy doing op-eds in the New York Times and yeah. posting all over. So, so what, what, what they argue, uh, as I've dug into this more, and you hear this from Elon Musk, from Peter Thiel, uh, from uh, Sam Altman to an extent, uh, and from various of the AI, from, from uh, in a different flavor from Mark Andreessen, uh, that's uh, effective um, accelerationism. Mm. Um, these are all tied together. And again, Emil Torres and Timnit Gebru are doing great work on this. And their argument is that, and it's going to sound good at first blush, oh, we owe much to the future. Mm. We owe responsibility to the future. And I argue that. I argue that the, the bottom line is we're building that future. We're making choices. We must make good choices. But those choices are in present tense. What the long-termists say is that we owe our greater obligation to the 10 to the 58th potential human beings, real and augmented, in the future, on various planets, across <laughs> ways. And, we, and, and, and they want to uh, augment humanity. Uh, Musk wants to put uh, chips into heads. Uh, well, there's a lot of utilitarianism and eugenics in this. One of the frustrating things about this age is that is that anything that gets said gets taken over, right? Medieval, oh, we're rediscovering the medieval and it's good. Uh oh, we're rediscovering the medieval and it's right wing uh, racist crazies. Um, uh, oh, Donald Trump is fake news. He takes over the words and now we can't use fake news anymore because he's fake news, right? So long term thinking seems like a good thing, but now it's been corrupted by the AI boys into this crazy. X risk, existential risk philosophy of theirs. And so Musk is going to be with your prime minister, mm. who's crazy. Musk is nuts. And he's talking about this stuff. He just talked about it, I think, just today. Uh, I saw a story uh, that he was on Joe Rogan, oh boy, saying that uh, crazy environmentalists would rather destroy all of humanity so that they can save the earth. He's nuts, right? Mm. And your prime minister invites him to this conference about AI. So the discussion about technology and the future is getting um, mangled in terrible ways. 
and and it's hard and it's nuanced to figure it out. But I think your perspective about your daughter, God bless, and how you build what you can build for her and how you help her be able to make the decisions along with her generation for that future, which is why I love teaching, um, and to empower them to make these decisions because they have the context of history, because they stand upon principles, because they recognize human responsibility. Um, that's all we can do. And when we face the problems of bad and crazy beliefs, whether it's medieval white supremacists in the US or Elon Musk and his chips in the head and many babies or whatever it is, the only answer to me in the long run is education. And education is also under attack. And so I'm not sure exactly what to do about that, especially right now in both countries, the, the cutbacks in the humanities mm -hmm. in UK universities is just criminal. Mm -hmm. The efforts to control conversation in, in various ways in US universities and their administrations is frightening. Our only way out of this, our only way to sanity, our only way to a better future, in my view, is education and the humanities and social sciences. Um, not technology. Technology is going to come on its own. There'll be Gutenbergs. There will be um, Mark Zuckerbergs too. There will be technologists and, and entrepreneurs. That's the kind of easy part. The hard part is, what do we do with it? Mm. What are the mental conceptions they'll inherit and, and, and see the world through? I mean, I suppose it's the last question. Um, you, you've obviously talked a lot in the book about Germany. We could talk for hours about this. The, the, clearly, the German-speaking world plays this incredibly central role in the, in the formation of the book and the Gutenberg parenthesis. Um, but what we see in the, in the early 17th century in Germany is, is this huge civil war, right? So you have this um, big cultural, political, social, technological disruption, which in some ways finds its catharsis with 1648, one might argue. But that's the beginning of the end of the, of the disruptive sort of moment. Um, given we're talking about what's going on in the US and you use the, the ana analogies of the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, Black Lives Matter, January 6th, how, how possible is it? And this might seem like a, um, a sort of tangential question. I don't think it is actually. How possible is it that the United States falls prey to something like not civil war, but civil warfare, low-level permanent civil warfare, permanent low-level political and cultural dysfunction, and is that an outgrowth of this change technology or is it something else? Because it does map on very well in terms of the German experience of that century and a half after Gutenberg. So at the International Journalism Festival in Perugia, I, a few years ago before the pandemic, had a debate with a German regulator. Ooh, what fun. <laughs> and uh, I made a joke. I said that, uh, well, eventually we figured out print. We, we as a society understood how to find systems of authority and institutions, and we, did, we, we figured out how to get much good out of print. But along the way, we had a reformation and a 30 years war. And who knows, maybe we have a 30 years war yet ahead of us. And the German regulator said, without an ounce of irony in his body, it is too soon to joke about that. A million people died. I'm sorry, but it was a long time ago. I, I guess it's too soon for that joke in Germany. But it's not a joke, too. He's right. Because we well could see that kind of extreme um, strife here. And the more that's why it's so troubling, once again, to see my field of journalism normalize and equalize the asymmetry that's occurring in this country with the far right. Um, after 2016... I was told by someone that there were serious meetings at the Washington Post uh, looking at how to plan to cover a civil war. Wow. Yeah. And what does a civil war mean in this age? You know, is it people in blue and gray uniforms in this country? Because we had one. You know, your civil wars were, were kind of wimpy compared to ours. But the problem is we're all intermixed. It's not like there's a Mason-Dixon line in my town. My property line, from here to the next house, there's a Mason-Dixon line because they're Trumpists. They don't like me and I don't like them, right? And my school board 
has crazies on it right now who are eliminating textbooks. Here up in, in, in New Jersey where I live, which went for Biden. My town even went for Biden. So we're all intermingled among each other with all the hate. Um, and what I think is actually happening, going back to the um, Reformation, counter-Reformation argument, is that um, what's disturbing the old powered groups is that they know they're going to become a minority. They know that their days in power are done. And so what they are choosing to do is to burn the fields mm. rather than share the crops with those who follow. And they're doing it, right? The whole point of the, of, the, of the Republican Party in the United States right now is to destroy government. It cannot be more obvious. They revel at every possible systematic, systemic dysfunction to keep it from operating and to do cynical, nihilistic, horrible things. And they celebrate that because that's the goal is to destroy the value of government as an institution and not just government, but education and science. See what happened with COVID and journalism and on and on and on. Every institution we value is better burned to the ground than shared. That's why I have to be a little cautious when I say, do we burn the old newspapers to the ground? Well, others would happily do it ahead of me. Yeah. Um, no, we have to reform the institution. Or we do have to replace them and come up with new ones. Um, and I think that's what we have to be aware of. And, and the question is, does America, like Germany, require a cauterization of a World War II of having gone so far over the edge that only then can it be enlightened to see that there is a different future that they should have followed? I pray not. But that's what happened in Germany. It had to go almost so far over the edge before they could come back to be a world leader. Um, I hope that doesn't happen here. I hope it doesn't happen where you are. I don't think it has to happen by any means, but I think we better be aware that it could happen. And so, but again, back to this question of, of the long-termists too. That's why Tim Gebru will argue and, and Margaret Mitchell and Emily Bender, who wrote the uh, stochastic parrots paper about AI, all this talk about all this future stuff is a distraction. There are present harms from AI that we should be dealing with. Yeah. environmental and labor and so on and so forth. Um, we've got to deal with that today. There are present harms in our political and, and information ecosystem systems that we've got to deal with right now. And we've got to see them as urgent. So uh, it's a little dangerous when I say, oh, we got time. I understand the problems of that. But we are building a future. We're building your daughter's future. Um, and we've got to have at least that long of a perspective. And we're doing it with lessons from the past that goes at least that far back, even a half a millennium back, uh, to understand how we want to do that. Uh, but yes, I think what we're trying to avoid could well be civil war. Jeff, we'll leave it on that very powerful note, I think. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Rather depressing. It's been a real pleasure. I don't want this to end. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for reading the book. I'm grateful and, uh, and for the exchange. Thanks so much, Jeff. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.